Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Oscar Trimboli, and what a fantastic surname. Let me start by saying that. Trimboli, I, I guess I should say, is here today to talk to us about how his work in a leadership capacity, both as a coach and a mentor, helps so many people all around the world find out how to unlock their own potential and go on to achieve personal success. Oscar has very much soaked up every one of life's experiences from his upbringing, his school life, working with his dad during the school holidays, and his connecting businesses through to working for the technology giant Microsoft. He has cleverly thought through his life experiences and worked out what he believes to be the key to success. Very interesting to hear from him today. He's coached a wide variety of people from CEOs and leaders through to marathon runners, and he's here today once again to tell us how he goes about helping people get the very best out of themselves. This is our kind of guest. Oscar, welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Yeah, g'day, Sandro. I'm really looking forward to listening to your questions, and I'm not going to do what David Braithwaite did and flip the tables and start interviewing you. Uh, I wouldn't allow it. It's happened once. Note, <laughs> note to self. So what a brilliant combination. You're an Aussie, but you've got a fabulous Italian surname, my kind of guy. So uh, let's find out about how all that came about, how you ended up in Sydney, Australia. First of all, many people respectfully won't know about you, Oscar. So let's start with childhood. Uh, and I suppose the impact that that's had on your path to success in life and, and where it's taken you subsequently. Yeah, I'm really lucky. I'm the son of two first-generation migrants from post-war Italy, but unfortunately, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, The one from the deep north of Italy and one from the deep south. In fact, Trimboli is renowned as one of the three mafia families in Australia. Uh, the good news is I had to work for a living, and the bad news is I got the stigma of the name at school as well. I went to a school with 23 different nationalities when I went to school. The Vietnam War was going on. There were wars in South America. There were wars in Eastern Europe, and uh, the Berlin Wall that isn't there anymore meant a lot of people were trying to leave Poland, Latvia, Lithuania. So at my school, the unifying force was an Italian card game called Briscola. And Briscola is played in pairs against other pairs. And the teams that were from South America love playing in Spanish or Portuguese, depending if they were Brazilian or Argentinian, or from Uruguay. And the same is true for the Poles and the same were true for the Greeks and the same were true for the people from Vietnam. Now, I was a bit of a loner because in my family, we got kicked out. We got kicked out because my dad was from the deep south and my mum was from the deep north. So I never learned to speak a second language. I got stuck with English and uh, that's a disadvantage when you're trying to listen in on a card game, Sandro. And as a result, I got, I got really good at reading body language, eye movement, eyebrow movement, hand movement on cards. I started to listen 
beyond the words. I started to listen to all these signals that people were sending me, even though I couldn't speak their language. So I ended up becoming the pickup player that everybody wanted on their team, despite the fact I have this thing called discalculus, which means I transpose my numbers. If you say 914, I'll probably write down 419, which was pretty weird because I started life out as an accountant. But six weeks in, my boss said to me, Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) And in my day, all calculations were done on paper-based spreadsheets. I was using pencil. My boss, a bit more advanced, was using pen. And he said to me, you got no future in accounting whatsoever. And two weeks later, um, his boss came to lunch. And all I could think about is how many weeks of cash have I got left because surely I'm going to get fired today. And Bill said something quite profound that changed the rest of my life. He says, Oscar, you know what? You're a hard worker. What do you know about computers? I said, Bill, absolutely nothing. He says, that's good. You're not going to lie to me, so that's a good start, but you're a hard worker and you'll learn fast. Why don't you install these new things called computers into our accounting firm? And then if that goes successfully, why don't you do that for your clients? Propel myself forward another 30 years. I'm a marketing director at Microsoft uh, for uh, five of uh, the 11 years I was there. And then a vice president said to me in a meeting once, If you could code the way you listen, Oscar, you could change the world. And in that moment, all I could blurt out was, Tracy, do you mean code or code code? And she looked at me as if I was profoundly stupid and said, Oscar, I mean code. We do work at Microsoft. And thus the quest that I'm on now for the rest of my life to create 100 million deep listeners in the world. Because although we spend half an hour listening, only 2% of us have ever been taught how to listen. I am particularly interested. This was going to be one of my questions. That is a lofty ambition to have a hundred million deep listeners. We will ask you what yeah. you mean. Well, by... it didn't start there. <laughs> no, no, no. I appreciate that. But what we're what we're going to do today is find out what you mean exactly by deep listening, because I think there's a, a profoundly different meaning to the way you see things, and I think the way we generally uh, approach listening. But before we get to that point, what I've heard so far is you're from a mafia family. You're clearly a card shark and you have an ability to turn big tax bills into little ones. So um, none of those things were on your CV when I when I first uh, d- decided that we'd have you on the show. So uh, very interesting, though, I have to say. Uh, again, note to self, Oscar Trimbellini needs to be a friend of mine. Anyway, uh, before we go any further, the, the 100 million deep listeners, tell us what you mean with uh, this expression, deep listening. What does that mean to you based on your experiences so far and what your quest is uh, that you've just alluded to a, a moment ago. Yeah, if we if we pay attention to the neuroscience of listening, Sandro, I speak at 125 words a minute, but there's 900 words a minute that I can think at. So that means there's 800 words a minute stuck in my head. So anybody who actively listens will listen to what you say. A deep listener will listen to what you haven't said. Now, I know I just sounded like Yoda from Star Wars saying you have to listen to what they haven't said. But the maths of the neuroscience is really simple. Um, one divide, uh, 125 divided by 900 means there's about an 11% chance that what I say the very first time is what I'm thinking, what I actually mean. And deep listening is helping the other person understand what they mean rather than you listening 
to what they're saying. So if you just simply say these two simple phrases, tell me more or what else, like a washing machine on a rinse cycle, you'll get the other 125 words out and you'll double your listening productivity. And Sandra, I'm sure in your financial business, you've heard these phrases before when you just pause a little longer or maybe just use silence. People will say, hmm, and they usually go, hmm, and they'll breathe out or they'll breathe in and they go, actually, you know what we should be talking about? Or actually, what I meant to say was, or the most important thing we should talk about right now, or now that I think about it a little longer, And I can sense right now, Sandro, you're nodding in agreement because you've been in meetings with clients where you've noticed them when you've given them a little bit more time and listened to them, they start to say what they actually mean rather than what they say the first time. So deep listeners are all about listening to what's unsaid. So um, you and I, Oscar, have quite a lot in common. We both had the opportunity to work with our fathers. I lost mine when I was very young, but I still had the privilege of seeing him work and joining his business for a period of time. What did you learn in working with your father and how has that impacted on your life, Oscar? Yeah, I was very lucky. My Working with my dad started at the age of five. If I was old enough to go to school, I was old enough to go to work with dad. So that meant I didn't actually know what a holiday was at school um, because everybody would say they went on school holidays. School holidays for me was in a in a big red truck with concrete formwork and tools. And every school holidays, that's what I would do with my dad. I would hop in the truck in the morning at 5 a.m. We'd drive between an hour and an hour and a half to some part of Sydney and we'd be laying formwork or concrete for a factory or a home. Now, what those first-generation migrants who were Yugoslavs, who were Greeks, who were Italian, who were Lebanese, all taught me was the value of a work ethic and the value of professionalism. Sandra, they taught me, they played a game. So the game was um, whoever was on the concrete machine would tap their shovel on the chute where the concrete was coming down, which was a signal for everybody to guess how many barrows of concrete were left. And this is where the professionalism came in. If you got closest to the number of barrows of concrete remaining, everybody had to shout your beer at the pub after work. And every time, 99 times out of 100, my dad would be bang on, which was hilarious because he doesn't drink like me. (laughs) Um, So you've now met an Aussie who's got a mafia background who isn't in the mafia, who doesn't drink. Uh, So there you go. So the other thing dad taught me, and it's a phrase that stays with me for the rest of my life, Oscar, you can't always be the smartest person in the room. You may be lucky sometimes that you are, but you can always be the hardest working in the room. And that is a dual-edged sword in terms of advice for me. I remember I was 23. It was a Saturday night. I was working because like any good son of a first-generation migrant, I got a, a big mortgage and got property because that's the way to success. So I was working hard and at nine o'clock, the security guard on a Saturday night said to me, shouldn't you be somewhere else? And I pointed to a building across the CBD, which was the Anderson Consulting Business, now the Accenture organization. And I said, to him, Leon, you see that light over there in the Anderson Consulting building? I'm not going home till they've finished working. And at 
6 a.m., Leon came back and the sun was rising over Sydney Harbour as I was looking at this light in the building and Leon said, you're crazy. And um, Leon, Leon was from Lebanon. He says, you're absolutely crazy. And I said, Leon, that light is going to go off before, is not going to go off unless I finish work. And he said, you're crazy because they just left the light on on Friday. And I just slapped my forehead and went, yeah, thanks, Dad. That hard work sometimes. Um, you got to be careful what meaning you put on it. I'm never going to get that Saturday night or that Sunday morning back in the rest of my life. You mentioned earlier, Oscar, your uh, your kind of ability, uh, because, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. But, you, you know, initially the challenge of uh, transposing numbers, you know, a form of dyslexia. With the benefit, I mean, it wasn't picked up, was it, until much later in life for you. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think that going through an educational process with this uh, with this challenge, I guess, or obstacle that perhaps hadn't been identified, do you think, with the benefit of hindsight, that was a good thing? Uh, has it? Did it get in the? Would it have got in the way? Is what I'm asking. If you'd known, or because you had a kind of clear mind about it, and maybe didn't quite understand uh, why you were doing these things as a, as a young man. Did it did it um, allow you to make more progress, do you think? I don't know if anyone's asked you that question before, but I know lots of people who have similar challenges. Richard Branson is a great example and has gone on to achieve, you know, renowned success. And I know you're very similar in terms of what you've achieved, but, you know, particularly at Microsoft. So looking back, uh, how did that shape your life one way or the other? Yeah, well, my biggest clue should have been the fact that of all the subjects I studied, maths was consistently the one I struggled with the most. <laughs> and ironically, um, accounting is really a subject about uh, logic more than it is about numbers. And, and I think for me, it was both a blessing that I knew and it was a blessing that I didn't know. And it probably made me work harder um, when it came to math. It didn't improve my results, but it helped me to understand that life isn't going to be easy everywhere and just embrace the struggle. And then when I knew, it was kind of a gift that I was very grateful for because, you know, the biggest industry in the last 50 years is technology, computer science and everything around it. And I wouldn't have been able to access that. Ironically, my dad always said to me that one job that's never going to go out of business is accounting. And ironically, now there's a likelihood in the next 50 years that computers and artificial intelligence can automate a number of the rules that accountants use. So maybe that job security isn't so high and it was somebody else looking over me. Maybe it was my nonno who was looking over me and pushing me over in the direction of computers. And uh, Undertaker it is then, because uh, on the basis that there's only two <laughs> things certain in life, one of them we've now discounted on the basis that computers and artificial intelligence will take over. So uh, it looks like we're burying people from now on. Um, you're, you're, you've <laughs> mentioned your, your decision to go down the technology career path. Obviously, yeah. it turns out to be the perfect one. Um, what did you learn from your time working for, you know, we don't have many guests that have the uh, the insights that you do into a large organization and its operations like Microsoft. I'm particularly interested to know about your creation, Microsoft Protégé. So what was that and how did it come about? Yeah, one, one thing I've always been really passionate about is, is next generation leaders. And, you know, I was really lucky that when I was growing up, whether it was in, in, 
football, as you would call it. Unfortunately, they call it soccer here in Australia. I was always in leadership roles and I got exposed to a lot of training around leadership in, in sporting pursuits, particularly when it came to cricket as well, but also at school. And I, it kind of became a study for me. And I was standing on a graduate recruitment desk with the Microsoft team and I got really frustrated because people were walking past our booth and for three hours, people are just walking past and it's an, it's an eight hour day and I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit there for the remaining time. So I just cold called on people. I stepped out and said, hi, you know, we're here from Microsoft. What kind of career are you interested in? And everybody thought that if you joined Microsoft, you had to be a software developer or a computer scientist or something like that. But in our organization, there's roles for sales, there's roles for marketing, human resources, even accountants. Uh, there's roles for lawyers, there's roles for customer service people, and most people didn't realize that was possible. So the next day I went back and I spoke to the vice president, Tracy, and she said, I said to her, our employment brand is broken. The best people want to work for banks. This is nuts. The most creative profession in the world is working with software and its ability to transform what people can do with their businesses or their education or medicine. And I said to her, I have an idea. So Microsoft Protégé was developed around a concept that we would go to universities uh, at the beginning of their calendar year for their academic year, and we'd pose a problem to them. Now, I was really selfish, Sandro, maybe lazy even. Uh, the first year, my business unit was trying to launch the next version of Microsoft Office to students. So we gave them a business case that they could study with real statistics and they would have semifinals at their university and grand finals across the winning universities. And the winning group of students would implement the idea. They would get money to do the campaign that they wanted to, to launch Microsoft Office. As a result of that, we got to look at the best university talent for nearly 12 months. We flipped from having third round people wanting to come and join us after a bank, after a consulting company had rejected them. And we got first time offers to these great talented youngsters. And that program ended up getting taken around to 26 countries around the Microsoft world to implement exactly the same program to get students really excited about working with Microsoft because we gave them practical hands-on experience. So that's one of the things I, I, I'm the head of the coaching faculty from the Marketing Academy, an organization that started off in the United Kingdom in 2014 for high potential marketing leaders in their late 20s and early 30s. And I brought that to Australia as well. So wherever you go, you're going to see me trying to promote the potential of next generation leaders because I feel your legacy is created by those people who live on beyond you, not just what you do day to day. So uh, there you are. And, and and this resonates with a lot of people listening, Oscar. You, you have a a, a very comfortable job. You're doing fabulously well at one of the most... It wasn't comfortable. Well, no. <laughs> comfortable in probably in terms of, you know, working hours prescribed, uh, you know, a decent pay packet, given lots of responsibility. What I'm saying is that you were in a, in a place that a lot of people would be deeply envious of and they would, they would consider it to be, you know, uh, archetypally a, a, great, a great career position for themselves but but then you made a decision to kind of go it alone so 
uh, we go from uh, a degree of comfort, different things to different people, to a considerable degree of discomfort because you're now out in the big wide world doing it for yourself. What prompted you, apart from your fascination for deep listening, what prompted you to make a move away from a large organization like Microsoft? Well, I, th- I think the first thing about it was it wasn't a move away from something. It was a move towards something. And I think well, be careful when you're leaving jobs, always leave jobs for something you're going to rather than leaving what you don't like. And that, that's one of the really good pieces of advice, um, not only that I've given, but that I got to be careful about your are you moving away from something or are you moving towards something? And for me, it was moving towards something. We were at a transition point where Microsoft had to move from shipping uh, DVDs uh, to organizations and individuals to building a business that was about distributing software over the internet. We moved from a payer big lump of money up front, and then in three years' time, we'll come back and ask you for another big lump of money to asking you for a monthly payment on a credit card or a monthly payment if you were a corporate. So there's this massive change going on in the industry. And what I was being used for was my business unit was at the front end of that. And I was listening to all the pain from our our resellers, from our customers, from our employees who were struggling with this transition. And at our annual conferences, Uh, Again, my vice president always asked me to talk about the human implications of this change. And then a lot of people in the audience would say, would you come and speak for us at our annual strategic planning day? Or would you come and speak to our leadership team? Because you've got a very different take on technology compared to most people at Microsoft, to most people at Google, to most people in any technology company. And what I understood was to be profitable, you have to look after your people first. If you look after your people, they'll look after your customers. And if they look after your customers, the profits will follow from that. And then a lot of people said, could you come in on a Friday at two o'clock for half a day and we're just going to ask you some questions. And uh, eventually these people said to me, um, hey, you know, we'd pay you for this. And I'd giggle because we had a policy at Microsoft that we couldn't work for anybody else. And for a year, I ignored those conversations, Sandro. But after the probably the 12 month period, I, I, I played a little game. I said, well, how much would you pay me if I did that? And I took these people at their word. And once I had five people who would replace half my salary, I thought, this is this is the change I'm meant to make in the world. And if I can go out and spread the message a little wider than just the technology view of that, I can make a difference in the world. And that's that's when I got challenged by a couple of mentors to go, you know, at that time, my goal was to teach one million deep listeners in the world. And a very good friend of mine, Matt, said to me once over a coffee, Sandro, he said, um, hey, why don't you add a zero and come back next month and see if you can make that happen? And I really couldn't wrap my head around going from 1 million deep listeners to hundred uh, to 10 million deep listeners. And then Matt, and I had coffee again next month. And then Matt said to me, how did you go with that? I said, oh, thinking about software and a whole bunch of other things. I think I can do it. He said, great, come back next month out of zero. I said, oh, geez, Matt, how long are we going to play this game for? He says, Oscar. And what he said next 
bit like my dad saying, you can't be the smartest in the room. You can always be the hardest working. Matt said to me, again, it'll stay. I, I know exactly which coffee shop we were in. I know what time of day it happened. Matt said to me, if you can achieve your goal in your lifetime, it's not ambitious enough. Your goal should stretch you way beyond your thinking on this planet. And in that moment, he said, why don't you go for 100 million? And I went, I commit to 100 million. I have no way of knowing how to do it. I'm not even sure I can track it, but probably can. Um, And thus the quest for 100 million deep listeners. And about four weeks ago, I was speaking to somebody in Atlanta in the USA. And he said, Oscar, such a limp goal. It's not even 2% of the Earth's population. Why don't you go for a billion? And I just went, Kevin, I'm just trying to get to 100 million first. Can we get to a billion next? And he used the same phrase on me. He says, if you can achieve it in your lifetime, it's not ambitious enough. How? And then he said, he said next, how can I help? Which is a really nice change. Mm. And he's opened up a whole world of possibilities about the kind of work I can do in the United States with him and his network. There are a lot of people listening will be scrambling for a pen and piece of paper to capture that little soundbite. And this is the reason why we keep these podcasts relatively short, because we only need one golden nugget like that one. So um, not even profound, but a, but a very, very great, I mean, a fantastic piece of advice, which I'm sure we will all, uh, we will all heed. So uh, one thing I just want to touch on a statistic, which is both uh, very interesting, but also quite alarming. I know you're renowned for really listening to people and you've trained and coached people, particularly call centers, to really listen to customers. I think I'm right in saying 55% of our time is spent listening, correct me if I'm wrong, but only 2% of us really grasp the skill of deep listening. Is, is that a statistic I've got right? And if so, how on earth is the number so low? So the more senior you are, the more of your day you spend listening. So if if you run a business, uh, if you're an owner, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to spend up to 86% of your day listening. So four out of five days of the week and six out of eight hours of the day you're going to spend listening the more senior you are. If you're in a more sales-orientated role, it's probably going to be around 60%. And it is true, your communication is 50% speaking, 50% listening on average, but not one of us can name our listening teacher at school, despite the fact we can name our maths teacher. By the second decade of a work experience in a corporate, you have done 100 hours of speaker training and zero hours of listening training. Listening is a skill that's much more valued in the East Sandra, than it is in the West. In the West, for example, we use these phrases, uh, the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening Mm -hmm. silence. Yet in the East, the listening is done by great, wise senior leaders by, by the use of silence. And for most of us, we never have any listening training at all, let alone the 2% who do. And the most significant listening training we get was when we're five years old, six years old, or seven years old, uh, where our one of our parents might smack us on the back of the head and say, why aren't you listening? And that's the extent of our listening training. Everybody knows in maths, there's plus, minus, divide and subtract. But nobody knows that there's five levels of listening. And although we can see in color, most people listen in black and white. 
Wow, what that's another lovely soundbite which we we need to explore. Certainly, if we have more time, so let's find a way of exploring in more detail before I ask you a couple of final questions. Uh, the playing card set that accompanies your book, Deep Listening, um, Impact Beyond Words. How does that work, and, and and what inspired it? Well, like everything I've developed, it just came out of listening. So uh, I was doing a workshop, and Alice came at the afternoon tea break, and we were putting sticky notes on a wall about what the cost of not listening was in this advertising agency. And she jumped in and she said, Oscar, you're not taking my card, are you? And I said, oh, sorry, Alice, what do you mean? And she grabbed the sticky note off the wall. She took a photo and then she slapped it straight into her um, paper-based calendar. And in that moment, I just went, wow, somebody's putting a lot of meaning on this. And I, I told the story to Kelly, my book editor, and Kel said to me, Oscar, you've got to make a set of playing cards out of this. So there, there are five levels of listening. There are five suits in the playing card set. So they're all organized on the five levels of listening. They're a little bit bigger than normal. People love them because they're tactile. People love them because they can do one per day. There are 50 cards, so you can do one per week and improve your listening all that way along. But isn't it funny how a card game comes full circle, Sandra? We were talking about Briscola when I was at high school. Mm. Now we're talking about card games in the workplace. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I particularly like a game called Canasta, but we, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll deviate from card games. But um, <laughs> I, can, I can attest to the fact, since I have thumb-read your book already, uh, how how fantastic it is. And I'm going to commit to uh, acquire a couple of copies of your book. We won't ask you for them, Oscar. We will purchase them and make them available as one of our prizes or two of our prizes to uh, Twitter and Facebook guests uh, or um, those who who subscribe uh, to avail themselves of your book. Uh, For everyone else who wants a copy, they're going to have to purchase one, I guess, on Amazon or or elsewhere. So final quick question. Um, You coach a a very varied... uh, group of people, individuals from a diverse range of backgrounds. Um, How do you adapt your coaching according to the person you're mentoring or coaching? Because that must in itself be quite a challenge. It's relatively easy if you give the person you're working with the power. So for a lot of us, we're not comfortable simply asking a phrase regularly. So every 15 minutes, I'll ask a how-based question to the person I'm working with the first time. And I'll simply say, hey, Sandro, thinking about what we've discussed in the last 15 minutes, what's been the most productive and what's been unproductive for you? And as I ask that question, I just adjust as I go along. The other thing I'm doing is I'm I'm listening for their language and their context. So one of the things you want to do, as you've done really well today, is listen for the backstory because most of us turn up listening to stories as if we go to a movie cinema, but we turn up 20 minutes late. We don't know who all the actors are. We don't know how they fit together. We don't know what the backplot is. The other thing I use to notice what's going to be productive for that person, people will speak in code for you. So people will speak 
typically either in the past tense or the present tense or the future tense. People will either speak in big picture or detail. People will speak randomly or sequentially. People will speak individually or collectively. People will talk about themselves or they'll talk about their teams or others. People will talk about inside their organization or outside their organization. So listening at level three gives you this adaption technique. When you listen for the context, you start to language match for where they're at. So the biggest thing that could frustrate someone I coach who's a big picture thinker is for me to keep coming back and asking them lots of what-based questions rather than asking them to continue to think about big picture, future-based, why-based questions. And then in matching that language set to them, trust builds up quicker because they figure, hey, he gets me. So think about how you're listening to language and that's a really fast way to help you adapt. Now your brain's going to hurt if you turn up to a conversation and you've got a laptop on or you've got a cell phone beeping and buzzing, uh, there's some foundations you've got to put in place at level one, listening to yourself. But Sandro, that's the way I adapt. Lots of how-based questions to understand what's really productive in the last 15 minutes, what's most unproductive in the last 15 minutes, and then we just adjust accordingly. Very good advice indeed. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people now uh, scrambling to find your book. So we know about that already, Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words, with the cards that go with it. But tell us how we find out more about Oscar Trimbley. Not not the most common name, easy to find on Skype, for example. Uh, <laughs> but how do we find out, you know, website, uh, social media, you know, with, with your background, uh, Microsoft, there's got to be loads of social media presence. But how do we find out about you in a in a very easy kind of way? The easiest thing to do, if you want to learn about the books, the playing cards, the jigsaw puzzle, the research. If you want to learn about the Apple award-winning podcast where we interview professional listeners like judges, air traffic controllers, journalists, and FBI hostage negotiators, if you go to listeningmyths.com, that's the gateway to everything. You'll be able to find me and how to connect with me on social media. But more importantly, you'll get five myths of listening and three practical tips about what to do. And I guarantee you, if you implement those three tips, you'll get four hours back a week, half a day back a week in your schedule because you'll be listening to what matters rather than taking roulette wheel 11% chances with every conversation. Amazing. Final, final question, and no better person to ask this question to, but let's imagine you have a you know, son or daughter who comes up to you and says, Dad, look, you know, you've, you've done so many great things, uh, so many insights into the world and into listening, into business success and all those other things that you've enjoyed in your career. What one single piece of advice could you give me to help me on my way in life? If it was a, a single piece of advice that maybe encapsulate, encapsulated what you've said today, Oscar, or maybe a mantra that you live by, what single piece of advice would you give to that young man or woman? Stop doubting yourself. You're enough. Back yourself. You're enough. That's the most succinct piece of advice I think we've had for many of our podcast guests. Uh, but brilliant, nevertheless. Um, so... All that remains for me to say, apart from I really wanted to continue this conversation, but uh, uh, people tend to get a bit fed up after about 35 minutes. So we have to call it uh, a day there. But I would love to talk some more to you. And I'm sure because we got such good feedback from uh, one of your protégés, a guy called Julian Treasure, I'm sure you've come across. We got so mm. much good feedback from the podcast with him. I'm sure the same will happen here. So we may well, if, with your permission, get you back. 
on the Sandro Forte podcast. But for the moment, and I, I think it would be remiss of me not to say to you, since you herald from uh, from Sydney, Australia, on behalf of everyone listening, you know, we we do extend our deepest sympathies to all the challenges that you and your countrymen, family, friends have endured over the last few months. And obviously we wish you well in trying to rebuild your, you know, your houses and your communities and to some extent your careers. So uh, on behalf of all of those listening to the Sandro Forte podcast, our best wishes to all you, all you Australians and uh, all that you're facing uh, at the moment. Uh, but uh, apart from that, Oscar Trimbley, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sandro Forte podcast. It really has been a truly fascinating insight into a skill, I guess, that uh, many of us have probably overlooked for far too long. So loads learned today. And I do sincerely thank you for sharing with us. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Lovely. Well, that was the Sandro Forte podcast. And what can I say about Oscar Trimbley? I'm really, really fascinating insight. I've personally learned a lot and I'm sure you have too. Please remember, we've got a new guest joining us just like Oscar every single week to share their own unique insights into achieving success, overcoming life challenges, or just a philosophy that help us to achieve more in our lives and careers. Remember, it's the Sandro's podcast, same on all channels. People do still make the mistake and go looking in the wrong place. If you want to email us, that's easy. Hello at sandrospodcast.com. Please remember to connect with me, Sandro Forte. It's the real Sandro Forte on Instagram. Please leave those reviews on iTunes. That's really, really important because then we, we can shape uh, and decide on the kinds of the guests you'd like to hear more of in the future. So until this time next week, as always, goodbye for now.